Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This bonus episode features some of our favorite articles on the subject of bees. They're cute and adorable. They're also sometimes a little scary. And we're going to cover all that and more today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. All right. Our first link comes from New Atlas by Rich Harity. An Oxford meta study finds honey most effective treatment for coughs and colds. Hey, hey. <gasps> oh, I'm so glad this is getting verified. This is one of those things that, like, we've known in my household, but couldn't, you know, expand beyond anecdotal evidence for a right, long time. Right. Well, we've got the data to back it up, and from the University of Oxford, no less. Ooh. It was a systematic review and meta-analysis from a trio of researchers, and it does confirm the effectiveness of honey as a first-line treatment for upper respiratory tract infections, or URTI. The study suggests that antibiotics are ineffective for these kinds of minor coughs and colds, and honey offers superior symptomatic relief according to the evidence gathered to date. Wow. It should be noted that this is really just for mild, minor coughs and colds sure. and upper respiratory tract infections. So this isn't like a drink bleach, get rid of COVID situation <laughs> or, you know, imbibe a bunch of honey and you're going to be magically cured. But honey has been known to have really powerful antimicrobial effects for a long time. Even as recently as 2018, the UK's National Institute for Health and Care Excellence went so far as to change its general recommendation for doctors and healthcare professionals, saying that honey should be prescribed before antibiotics for patients that wow. have mild coughs and colds, which is pretty astonishing. Yeah, it's fascinating because a study that you mentioned was the one I had heard in the past about coughs. And so mm -hmm. this is basically saying even infections down where the honey doesn't get to, down inside exactly. the lungs. Exactly. Yeah. Upper respiratory tract infections. And so it obviously is super cheap, easy to access, has very limited harms. You're not going to get a whole bunch of side effects unless maybe you have like a glucose sensitivity or diabetes or something like that. You'll obviously want to watch your sugar. They also noted that not all honey is created equal. Mm -hmm. But despite the broad variety of types of honey used in the clinical trials, the results were still pretty consistent. So you don't have to necessarily reach for super pricey Manuka honey if it's harder to find. Basically, any honey should generally be somewhat beneficial, especially as a first step. Well, and it makes sense as well, because honey is one of those things that they found like in ancient Egyptian tombs that hasn't spoiled mm -hmm. after thousands of years because it really, it's super antimicrobial. Mm -hmm. Does it say anything about the preventative use of honey? Because I've been doing a lot of that lately. <laughs> Just eating honey, hoping that it works. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's got very few side effects. Can't hurt. That's I'm right. I'm sure if you want to conduct your own kind of study, the internet would be very interested to hear your results. That's right. That's Give us your data. justification for me. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from National Geographic. It's by Jason Biddle. It's about a rare mutant honeybee. It starts with <laughs> it starts with master beekeeper Joseph Zigerzinski. He's been a beekeeper since 1976. He currently manages six million bees at his farm in Philadelphia. So it's fair to say he knows his bees. And in June, he noticed a particular bee in his hive which had these creamy yellow eyes, and they were really, really big that made them look like male eyes. But 
the abdomen of this bee was female. Huh? Yeah. So it was just a very strange bee altogether. And he got very lucky in that he happened to have a photographer with him that day. I'm not sure what she was supposed to be photographing, but she was there. And so she took a bunch of pictures of this special bee. And they sent it off to a honeybee specialist at North Carolina State University named David Tarpey. And he confirmed, yes, obviously this is a mutant bee. But more interestingly, the eyes and the fact that the bee was showing signs of both sexes were actually two different mutations. The eye mutation is sort of a rare but known thing. The bee is probably blind. But what they call gynandromorphism Mm. is much rarer. And Tarpy said, it's like catching two bolts of lightning in the same bottle for this bee to have both mutations at the same time. And it goes a little bit into some really interesting bee inheritance patterns. So humans have one set of chromosomes from each parent, right? Mm -hmm. But when a queen bee and a drone mate, she only ever lays female eggs. The male bees actually come from unfertilized eggs, which means they only have one set of genes from the queen. They're kind of like clones, but obviously they're not because they're male. And it leads to the sort of unusual situation where male bees have no fathers, but they do have grandfathers because the queen bee came from a fertilized egg. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. But basically, Tarpy said, with only one set of genes in the male bees, mutations are much more likely to be expressed because they don't have that second good copy to kind of overwrite and protect them from it. So eye mutations are much more common in male bees, and they've been studied since 1953. But even then, the gynandromorphism that this bee is showing is actually special even within that. Usually, gynandromorph bees are bilateral, meaning there's a male-female split right down the middle. Like the left half is male and the right half is female or vice versa. And it's known to happen when the egg starts to split but doesn't finish before fertilization. It's basically like conjoined twins, effectively. Hmm. But this particular bee has what's called mosaic gynandromorphism, which means the traits are all muddled together. There's like female wings, but then there's some male mandibles and the whole thing is just a mishmash. And they have no idea how that happens in development. And they actually they went and got a quote from Aaron Krachilski at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, who has worked with bilateral gynandromorphism before. And she said these mutants are seen as easily disregarded like mistakes. But I think we're underestimating them. She said, for instance, it could be that these half male, half female bees may be a key step in evolutionary uh, sort of precursors to new forms or behaviors, right? The key that they don't know is whether the gynandromorphism affects their longevity or their fertility, because if one of these half female bees could, in fact, become a queen and start laying eggs, that would change the entire reproductive society Mm -hmm. of how these bees are being made. So it's an interesting thing that she thinks obviously should be studied more. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, will not be studied on Zygorzynski's bee. He pulled the special bee out of his hive and preserved it in a jar. So it's gone. But (laughs) he argued that it would have died anyway, because since it also had the eye mutation and was blind, it was going to get kicked out of the hive or rejected pretty quickly. So this way, at least, he has it, it's preserved, Mm. and it can be studied. But yeah, so blind intersex bees are a thing. And we have one in a jar somewhere. Wow. I mean, talk about also in terms of slim chances, like out of six million bees, he happened to find this one. That's pretty wild. Oh, yeah. But if it's got milky, creamy yellow eyes, it's probably easy to spot because that just sounds like a zombie. Right, right. (laughs) They actually, there's a picture of it in the article Uh, and it is, it's cute. And you can see like, oh, yeah, those are big old eyes on that thing. It would pop out if you were looking among six million bees for it, I guess. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, according to SciTech Daily, honeybees use animal dung to fend off 
giant murder hornets. Oh, that's enterprising. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I, admittedly, animal dung would keep me away from the bees. I guess. <laughs> Well, what makes this pretty special is that this finding is also the first to document the use of tools by honeybees. It's kind、oh. of sad that it took something like murder hornets to spur <laughs> this kind of evolutionary innovation. But you know, if anything's going to make you、uh, resort to tool use, it's going to be a murder hornet. I'm just that's、saying. right. Well,、mm-hmm. half of our in- inventions came from you know Pentagon and military budgets too, so it makes sense. Exactly right, and you know, <laughs> animal dung pretty plentiful resource if you're a honeybee. <laughs> <laughs> the University of I want to say Guelph. It's G U E L P H.、Um, hmm. So I'm just going to call it U of G going forward. But they've discovered <laughs> honeybees in Vietnam collect and apply spots of animal dung around hive entrances, and they do this to deter the deadly nest raids by an Asian hornet, the Vespa soror. Whose North American cousins have been dubbed murder hornets. So、mm. technically, they're Asian hornets, but here we call them murder hornets, which seems actually the opposite of how we do things in America now.、We、right. Like, <laughs> Normally,、mm-hmm. you would think we'd attach a nationality. <laughs> I <to> mean, <laughs> yep. The invasive species in North America it originally came from Asia. Giant hornets are almost as long as a golf tee and pack about seven times as much venom in、oh. a single sting as an ordinary honeybee. I mean, it's why we're、mm. calling them murder hornets, right? Yeah. The arrival of the venomous insect in North. America has raised concerns about human safety, obs, as well as threats to local honeybees and ecosystem. So they conducted a study with lead author Heather Matilla, who completed her PhD at the U of G in 2006 and now is a biology professor at Wellesley College. The article also has a really cute picture of them kind of pinching together the wings of a honeybee very carefully, where they could zoom in on a piece of dung being carried in the honeybee's mouth. So. Kind of cute. <laughs> These two species are the only hornets that recruit nest mates in organized attacks that can lead to nest breaches. What they do is they raid the nest, they kill the bees, and they carry away larvae and pupae to feed their own developing brood.、Ooh. Super rude, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. They're baby snatchers. That's、they、unkind. That's, that's exactly <laughs> what they are. Yeah. They. It's kind of like a Viking raid, really. <laughs>、uh, the researchers found that the honeybees have developed a preemptive defense by collecting animal. Dung and applying it to hive entrances, but unlike the Asian counterparts, honeybees in Canada lack similar defenses. So this means that North American beekeepers usually have to rely on just destroying hornet nests or hope that climate or other factors will limit the hornet spread. But if it works, and we know it works, can we put animal dung on honeybee hives to protect them? I mean, I'm sure the honeybees won't appreciate it, but they won't know what's going on. <laughs> I think that might be kind of an inference to take from the study, right?、Mm-hmm. They began this project after asking honeybee keepers in Vietnam about all these dark spots at the hive entrances. And during one visit, an experienced beekeeper explained that the substance was buffalo dung.、Hmm. So they got some money from the National Geographic Society to do this. Study the researchers gathered dung from water buffalo, chickens, pigs, and cows, and what they did is they placed it in mounds near an apiary. And by the end of the day, about 150 bees had visited the piles, particularly collecting more odiferous manures.、Mm. Of pigs and chickens, so they went for the stinky stuff. But all they had to do was put a pile there, and the Canadian bees were like, "Oh, we get it," and took it and used it. I think the study was still in Vietnam, so these were the Vietnamese bees. Oh, okay. But you're right in that, like, the learnings from this are hopefully something that we can take and fortify the rest of our bee populations worldwide. So the hornets spent less than half as much time at nest entrances with moderate to heavy dung spotting, and、hmm. they spent one tenth as much time chewing at the hive. 
entrances to get at the bees' brood. They were also less likely to launch mass attacks on the more heavily spotted hives. And this wow. is a huge yeah. improvement over what beekeepers in Vietnam normally have to do. They have to, and these are the humans, stand guard and swat away individuals, preventing Ooh. them from escalating their attacks. I know, it's super <laughs> manual. And at first, you know, the researcher was terrified about working near the giant hornets because the hazmat suits typically worn for protection by researchers in Japan were impractical in Vietnamese heat. They're just mm. smothering and too much. So the article just ends with this very memorable quote. I got stung by one and it was the most excruciating sting in my life. Yeah, that sounds, <laughs> I mean, that's good for the Vietnamese honeybee keepers going around risking their own pain to swat I these know. guys away. And not even being able to use the hazmat suits for protection, just hardcore Vietnam. I mean, if they now know that poop can get rid of them, they just can cover themselves as well as the entrance. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be my next question. Like, how far does this go exactly? <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe we let this kind of progress at the insects pace because if we're just covering everything in poop and suddenly the murder hornets develop some kind of like, eh, it doesn't bother us anymore, that's when we know that the proverbial has hit the fan. Right? That's right. We don't, mm -hmm. don't want to over overdo it and no, speed up their evolution. No. Mm -hmm. I guess I won't cover myself in poop then since you say it's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure science has a lot to say on why that's not a good right, idea, but right. at least you're not a honeybee and don't have to worry about it now. That's true. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Speaking of animals that just want to hang out, <laughs> this article comes to us from TheGuardian.com, and it's titled, U.S. Man Returns from Swift Shopping Trip to Find 15,000 Bees <gasps> in His Car. What? Yeah. So, a man who went shopping in New Mexico returned to a car filled with 15,000 honeybees who had apparently got in through an open window while he spent 10 minutes <laughs> buying groceries. <laughs> and yeah. just crashed and, in, huh? Yeah. And astonishingly, the man who was not named in the New York Times report detailing his unexpected travel companions did not notice the sudden presence of the giant swarm of buzzing insects on his vehicle's back seat until he was driving away. No. Yeah. He's like driving and 15,000 bees like tap him on the shoulder on the highway. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> like they conglomerate into a body. Right, right, right. I, I know bees are small in individual number. 15,000. How that's do you not notice yeah, that's that? that's too many yeah. bees. So there is there is a photo on no. this article and it is ridiculous. Like they're in the back seat and they all just swarmed into the crack in the window. Like I don't know what the heck. But uh, anyway, so Jesse Johnson, an off-duty firefighter and paramedic whose hobby is beekeeping, said of the man's reaction in an interview with the paper. <gasps> then he turned back and looked and was like, "Holy cow!" Yeah, <laughs> I don't think "cow" was the word he used, but I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> And then he called 911 because he didn't know what to do. <laughs> so would I. That Same. seems like a perfectly reasonable yeah. response. Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, that's got to be one of the more interesting calls you get as a 911 <laughs> operator. You know, like, right. that's where like you just, cars full of bees all of a sudden. You assume that guy's high. You're like, okay, we need a paramedic <laughs> yeah. for the guy who's taken too many fuzzy drugs because right. there's no way there's 15,000 bees in the back of his car. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is in New Mexico, right? The home of fictional Breaking Bad. So I'm sure yeah. that the dispatcher was like, mm-hmm. Yeah, sure there are, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Johnson and his fellow firefighters helped the man remove the bees and put them in an empty hive box. So luckily, it was a fine ending to the situation. He said the bees were likely swarming with a queen and looking for a new home 
home, which does make them more docile and easier to handle as they're not defending their turf. Mm. And the whole incident passed largely without injury, but not entirely. One guy got stung on the lip, and we made fun of him the next morning. <laughs> 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 yeah, so I mean, I had no idea that bees would all swarm that aggressively with a queen because that does seem like the most likely explanation. Right. But um, it's moving day. Horrifying. Like mm-hmm. they just yeah. packed up and they all coordinated together, which is cool. Like bees can coordinate to that degree, which is awesome, but they picked the wrong place, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it makes me wonder if, if you catch a bee swarm in the middle of a move, does it just look like like one mass like this because yeah. I mean, the photo is horrifying. It's terrifying. <laughs> and I'm just imagining them moving through the air as one gigantic bee cloud. <sighs> like the schools of fish in Finding Nemo. They yeah. arrange themselves and give you messages. Like, hey, where's yeah. the nearest bee hotel? Oh, that way? Cool. Thanks. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, it just walked up to the car, formed a latch with its arm, and then unlocked the door and then just got in. That's how it happens. <laughs> Speaking of Jurassic Park, they, they can open doors now. <laughs> Life finds way man it always finds a way (laughs) exactly next link next Next link link. well i'm gonna go to a literal fluff piece here from disclosed tv this one's called long lost ultra rare blue bee discovered in florida bee as like bumblebee that's right And, and i wish i could i'll do my best to describe this to you it's worth checking out the link but it's basically not a fat bumblebee but like a regular bee but it's furred and it's got kind of like a furry black butt, furry black uh, <laughs> little leggy things. I don't know B anatomy, so forgive me. I'm sure. I'm sure one of them. I think legs is correct. I think that leggy things. Right? Um, and then, and then, kind of from the waist up and covering its head, it's got literal Cookie Monster colored blue fur on. Wow. It. It's adorable, you guys. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. It's I know, and and yay, Florida! Like something we can actually applaud Florida for. Um, now, it's okay, but Cal- <laughs> if it's out of Florida, are they sure it's not? like a chemical like are they certain this is a native bee (laughs) maybe it took too much meth like i would question (laughs) i mean the color does match what i'm familiar with seeing on breaking bad however accurate that is i've never actually seen meth but it is called the calamintha bee it is a native to florida and it was thought to be lost over many many years it basically it's got a habit of bobbing its head back and forth when it's pollinating to kind of spread the pollen and so it's this unique motion that caught the attention of researchers when they were looking for it. And basically the plant on which the bee depends on for survival, which is called the Kalamintha ashai, is also endangered, which is why they thought this bee was just kind of long gone. But basically on March 9th, Dr. Chase Kimmel, he's a postdoctoral associate at the University of Florida. He and a volunteer went out looking for bees. They were setting traps. They saw the bee bobbing. There's no video of this, but I like to think of a bee like bobbing its head like it's listening to headphones and just kind of jamming while it's eating some pollen yeah, or whatever. Yeah, rocking out. Yeah, I'm kind of imagining like a raver bee right now. <laughs> exactly, because it's like cookie monster blue, you guys. It's a plur bee. I'm sure of it. Um, <laughs> but basically, the blue bee has only been recorded over history in four locations, and they all total 16 square miles within central florida's lake wales ridge so i mean this is a hyper specialized bee on a hyper specialized flower in a tiny part in florida so now they're looking to kind of keep an eye on it try to get the flowers back into population so they can continue to thrive so it's not the kind of thing where like flamingos are only pink because they eat pink shrimp does the flower make the bee blue or is it just blue on its own you know the article doesn't really get into it i'm sure that would be googleable if i were to spend some time googling i don't know i think podcast but i won't if it were true they probably would have mentioned it like dyeing your bee based on the nectar of the yeah i bet the nectar is not blue i don't even know if the flower is blue i don't know why there may be some kind of chemical 
chemical composition in the specific flowers or maybe it's environmental, but it's worth a look-see because I've always thought that the fuzzy but bumblebees that are bigger and more adorable, I always, those are my favorites, but this may have taken the top spot now. Yeah, you don't get a lot of blue animals. I'm trying to think of, I mean, Cookie Monster, obviously he counts, clearly, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, blue birds. That's true. You got blue jays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. I just wasn't being very. They're represented in the avian world, I think. (laughs) And it may have to do with ultraviolet recognition. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But. Well, if we shine the UV light on them, that will just further instigate the raver image that they're trying to cultivate. (gasps) Yeah. (laughs) If they turn their blue bee conservatory into like an outdoor wetland rave environment, (laughs) I feel like they could get enough fun to keep it going. Yeah. And the bees would flock to it because we know they love it. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, I'm going to apologize in advance. You guys are not going to like this article. Uh Uh, Sweet. Yeah, it is is really awful, and that is exactly why I chose it. It's from Ars Technica. The title really says it all. Here's what happens when a bee stings you directly in your eyeball. No! Yep, yep. (laughs) This This is a medical issue that really happens. It's rare, but it does happen. The December issue of the New England Journal of Medicine reports the story of a 22-year-old man in Mangalore, India, who arrived at the Kasturba Medical College emergency room one hour after being stung in the left eye by a bee. As would be expected, he was suffering from redness, pain, and most distressingly, severely decreased vision in that eye. Visual acuity in his right eye was 20-20, but his left eye could only see rough hand movements right in front of his face. The stinger had unfortunately gone right through the cornea in the center of his eye, and it was still there. (laughs) So I mean, you you can't scrape that out with a credit card or anything, right? That's right. That's right. That's that's a little more delicate. Okay, sorry. Continue. (laughs) Oh, it gets worse. Uh, As if the description weren't enough. Yes, there are pictures. (laughs) <laughs> nope. Oh. Nope. Yep. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, they're really not that bad. It's just an extreme close-up of a really red, irritated eye with a sort of blurry white spot that they had to point out with a red arrow on the picture because otherwise you might think it was, you know, dirt on the camera lens or something. It's really <gasps> not very obvious. Uh, <laughs> corneal bee stings are rare, but they have been documented in the medical literature before, so the risks are pretty well known. First, the physical damage to the cornea can result in corneal decompensation or cloudiness which can occur also with other types of eye injuries. It may heal over time, or in the worst cases, it can become permanent and require a corneal transplant. But that is still something that modern medicine can do, should it come to that. Second, however, the venom injected into the eye will cause some swelling, and that can lead to secondary glaucoma, which is where the fluid pressure inside the eyeball increases too much and puts pressure on the optic nerve. And that can lead to permanent damage to the nerve. So treating secondary glaucoma involves usually some kind of effort to reduce the swelling, either with medication or, in the most extreme cases, surgery to drain the excess fluid. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, the young man in question did not seem to have too much pressure behind his eye at that point, and the doctors were confident that it would go down over time. Unfortunately, patients generally need to stay awake for any kind of eye procedure, because the eyes will roll back when you go under general anesthesia and they can't be worked on. So, of course, they gave him a local anesthetic, but he had to stay awake while they fixed him up. 
So (laughs) after the anesthetic eye drops, he was given antibiotic eye drops and the stinger was gently removed. They do not mention credit cards, but (laughs) did they give him a Valium? Like when I had my LASIK surgery, I had to, you know, be awake for it, I guess, for the same reasons. But they definitely gave me some like happy, don't worry type of pill to be like, hey, we're going to be operating on your eye. I don't know. I mean, it's India. They didn't mention anything like that. (laughs) I think maybe they just said, suck it up and lay down and hold still. But they, but it was pain-free, at least. They did give him the anesthetic. They thoroughly washed the space underneath the cornea so that any lingering venom would get out of there. And then the puncture site was sewn up with corneal sutures, which mm. makes sense. But I had never thought about the fact that you can get stitches in your eye. Like, that that's a thing they Ugh. can do. It's not normal stitches, obviously. They're very, very, very fine. They dissolve on their own. You don't usually have to remove them. And it's exactly what they do when they give you, for example, a corneal transplant. They had some Mm -hmm. awful pictures that I went and looked up because at this point I was just going down a rabbit hole. (laughs) And uh, they actually look kind of cool because like any kind of sutures, they're very geometric and precise. And so it's like a normal eye, but then it's got these cool little lines going. I don't know. (laughs) I found it interesting, but I'm not recommending it before lunch at any rate. Yeah, I'm learning a lot more about your own tolerance for squeak versus mine. (laughs) (laughs) And then, believe it or not, they sent him home. He was given a two-week course of topical steroids, some more antibiotics, and a cycloplegic medication, which paralyzed the ciliary muscle of his eye and thus prevented the lens from instinctively trying to focus on things in tandem with his other eye, because that's just Mm -hmm. what the eyes do. They work together. So Mm -hmm. they prevented that by just numbing the crap out of it and keeping his eye loose. And the good news is, at a follow-up three months later, his cornea was healed, and the vision in his left eye was only reduced to 2040, which, you know, that's that's legal to drive in the U.S., so not too bad. He recovered about as well as anyone could have from such a horrific, terrible experience. They really sent him home, and they were just like, ah, just blink it off. Yeah. They're like, you're good. <laughs> we got wow. the stinger out. What more do you want, man? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, At least it was a honeybee sting and not a murder hornet sting, because I don't even oh, want to begin yeah. to think about, like, <laughs> And then we're all going to be walking around with dung in our eyes just to protect ourselves. It's bad. <laughs> it's a bad idea. It's the latest trend in cosmetics healthcare. Ooh, that's true. A nice little smoky eyeshadow. That'd be all right. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. A little bit of mixed news here from sciencemag.org. Apparently, some nuclear fallout is showing up in U.S. honey decades after the bomb test. Oh, Hmm. man. We eat a lot of honey in my house. Like, that's frustrating. Well, the good news is the levels of radioactivity are not dangerous, but they may have been much higher in the (laughs) 70s and 80s. Okay. Well, I I was only barely a lot. That's fine. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) A soil scientist named Daniel Richter at Duke University commented, it's really quite incredible. It shows that the fallout is still out there and Mm -hmm. disguising itself even more worrisome, as a major nutrient. Whoa. So how is this happening? Well, you know, in the wake of World War II, the U.S., the former Soviet Union, and other countries detonated hundreds of nuclear warheads in above-ground tests. Mm -hmm. So back in the 50s and 60s, these bombs that we were testing ejected radiocesium, which is a radioactive form of the element cesium. But the spread wasn't uniform. For example, a lot more fallout dusted the U.S. East Coast thanks to regional wind and rainfall patterns. Mm. But radiocesium is soluble in water, 
and some plants can mistake it for potassium, which is a vital nutrient that shares similar chemical properties. So to see whether plants continue to take up this nuclear contaminant, a geologist named James Cast at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, gave his undergraduate students an assignment. Bring back local foods from their spring break destinations, and let's just test it for radiocesium. See what happens. So one student, he returned with honey from Raleigh, North Carolina, and to their surprise, it contained cesium levels 100 times higher than the rest of the collected foods. He wondered whether eastern U.S. bees gathering nectar from plants were concentrating radiocesium Mm. from the bomb test. So they gathered some colleagues, including some undergrads, and they collected 122 samples of locally produced raw honey, which are usually the buzzwords when you want to get honey, right? You want it locally produced, you want it raw. So they gathered this from across the eastern United States, and from the 122 samples, they found it in 68 of the samples at levels above 0.03 becquerels per kilogram, which is roughly 870,000 radiocesium atoms per tablespoon. Oh, yikes. <laughs> the <laughs> highest levels of radioactivity occurred in a Florida sample that had 19.1 becquerels per kilogram. Could also explain a lot about the Florida man meme that has been going on for a few years. (laughs) But the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is telling Science Magazine these numbers are nothing to worry about. Hmm. They still fall well below 1,200 becquerels per kilogram, which is the cutoff for any food safety concerns, according Hmm. to the agency. Quote, I'm not worried at all. I eat more honey now than I did before I started the project. And I have kids. I feed them honey. Hopefully not under that threshold where you're really not supposed to give raw honey to children. Yeah. (laughs) Radiocesium does decay over time, so the honey in the past probably contained more of it. And to find out how much more, the team poured through records of cesium testing in U.S. milk, which was monitored out of concern for radiation contamination, and they analyzed archived plant samples. And in both data sets, the researchers found that radiocesium levels had declined sharply since the 1960s, which is a similar trend that likely occurred in honey. Mm-hmm. To look at sort of another recent radioactive disbursement, after the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986, scientists showed that radiation levels nearby could hamper the reproduction of bumblebee colonies. But those levels, granted, were about a thousand times higher than the modern levels that we're talking about here. So Mm -hmm. even though the new study should not raise any alarm bells, understanding how nuclear contaminants move around is still vital for gauging the health of our ecosystems and our agriculture as well as ourselves, right? Sure. We got to understand when we mess with something, there are side effects that happen far away and much longer than we realize. So we can't just Long-term thinking is still a thing. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we get a superhero out of it, like a radioactive spider bit Spider-Man. Maybe we get some sort of radioactive B-Man. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying it's worth it. I'm just yeah. saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if we got to have something to kind of take on the murder hornets and I, I would go with a radioactive bee. Why not? Let's see what happens. We'll that's find right. out in 50 years. That's right. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for this bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.